Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Clay, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, I hang out up front. Come on up, say hi. I'd love to chat with you, get to know you a little bit better. Um, and so as Paul mentioned, over the last uh, few weeks, we've been asking you to submit questions that you might have about the Bible. And uh, we're going to do things a little differently this morning. I'm just going to be answering some of the questions that you have. And I actually want to start off with a few that uh, somebody who might be something like the guy that just did the announcements could have potentially asked and answered. So uh, with apologies to Paul, here's a couple of the questions that could have been maybe or maybe not have come from him. Did they play baseball in the Bible? Paul might ask. Yes, they did. In the big inning, Eve stole first, Adam stole second, and the prodigal son came home. How's that one? That's pretty good. They get worse from there. Did they play tennis in the Bible? Yes, Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. That was a good one. What do we have that Adam and Eve did not have? Ancestors and belly buttons. And then finally, what did Adam say, when, uh, say to his children when they asked why they couldn't live in the Garden of Eden? Your mother ate us out of house and home. Okay, there you go. Those of you who know me know that I'm actually restraining myself a little bit uh, in that situation. I just want to have a little, little bit of fun with it. But you guys asked some great questions, and uh, some of them were some, you know, some we've gotten many times. In, in fact, one of the ones that I want to answer is... Actually, one of the most common questions uh, that I'm asked as a pastor, and that is, how did we get our Bible? And to answer that question, I want to kind of do a little bit of a sweep of uh, history from within the Bible that'll show us how the books that we have, the 66 books that we have in the Bible came together. And as I'm doing that, I'm going to hang some of the other questions on that framework. So bear with me, and I think you're going to see kind of a flow of history as we're answering that question of how we got the Bible, and some of the other questions kind of line up uh, as, we're, as we're doing that. And we're going to be looking at God's relationship with his people over the many years that he knew them, that he's been reaching out to them. So go back all the way into the Old Testament to the time when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. They spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt, obviously incredibly difficult time. About 1440 BC, God raises up a guy named Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And they end up going, and there's all the 10 plagues, if you remember that, either from reading the Bible or from watching one of the many movies that there are about the Exodus event. So God, in miraculous fashion, leads them out of slavery in Egypt. They cross over the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is killed, you know, and everything seems to be good. They're in the desert, they're wandering around in the wilderness, and he brings them to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And at this point, God displays his power in an incredible way with all sorts of fire and smoke. Some people think that maybe it was kind of a volcanic kind of a thing, and the people are just terrified of God at this point. Moses goes up on the mountain, and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and Moses comes down and gives the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel at this point. And he says to them, we need to take the Ten Commandments and put them in this box that's known as the Ark of the Covenant. And if you've ever watched the movie Raiders of the Last Ark, you're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I wouldn't let you know, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas 
tell us the story of the Exodus and what the significance of the Ark of the Covenant is, but that's probably a pretty good depiction of what the Ark looked like. It was this box that the Israelites carried around with them that symbolized God's presence with his people. And inside the box, they kept the Ten Commandments, they kept uh, Aaron's rod that had budded during the, uh, during the time when they were um, leading the Israelites out of uh, slavery in Egypt. They kept a jar of manna to remind themselves of the way that God had provided for them during their time in the wilderness and other artifacts that were important to them. But the key thing for our question of how we got the Bible is that Moses told the Israelites, keep the Ten Commandments in this box so that you will have them. They viewed the Ten Commandments as having come down from God. They were written on two stone tablets by the finger of God. And this was the first time that the Israelites had set aside some of their sacred writings because they believed that God had given them the Ten Commandments through his prophet Moses. And this is the beginning of them collecting what we know to be as the Old Testament. So then, 40 years later, we'll fast forward to about 40 years later, and they're about to enter into the Promised Land, the land of Canaan across the Jordan River. And they're all gathered on the one side of the Jordan River, and Moses begins reciting to them the law that God has for them when they're about to enter into the land. And he writes down their history up until this point and the law that God has for them. Essentially, what Moses is giving them is their history as a people and the constitution that they're going to be following as the nation of Israel. So what do we do with our constitution today? It's sitting in the Smithsonian, unless you believe some of the movies that we've seen, in which case, you know, that's just a, a fake document that's there. And, and um, what's his name takes it in that movie? Uh, who's the guy? Uh, uh, Nicholas Cage steals the, you know, the constitution or the Declaration of Independence, you know, and, and that kind of thing. So what you've got is the uh, Moses writes down the history of Israel. He writes down the constitution for the nation of Israel, and they take that and they put it in the tabernacle, which is their central place of worship. And in Deuteronomy chapter 31, it says, after Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from the beginning to the end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law, place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. So what's happened here is Moses has just written down what we know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament, or the Pentateuch, he's written them down, and the Israelites place them in the tabernacle, which was a portable structure where they would worship God as they're uh, working their way through the desert to the promised land. And so this is the second time now that God has given them sacred writings that they view as authoritative because they came from God through his prophet, and they're preserving them, they're protecting them because they know that they're important for them as the nation of Israel. And this leads to one of the other questions that one of you asked. And the question was, wouldn't a Jew have a problem worshiping Jesus as God because of what Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 says? And Exodus chapter 20, actually I want to start at verse 2, says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, Christians see these two verses as the first commandment. Jews actually see them as the first and second commandments, and the particular way of counting doesn't make a, a significant difference for our purposes this morning. But when, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, the question is, wouldn't this be a problem 
for Jews who are considering the possibility of worshiping Jesus as God. Because it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And if Jesus is claiming to be God, isn't that a contradiction with what God had said in the book of Exodus? And the answer is absolutely. It is absolutely an issue for Jews who are considering worshiping Jesus. In fact, this became a major issue between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders in the first century because Jesus is claiming that he is the God of the Old Testament. And the Jewish religious leaders are saying, there's absolutely no way that you are the God of the Old Testament. That's blasphemy. And there was at one point when they tried to stone him to kill him for claiming that he was God. So this is definitely an issue for them. And if all we had were the Pentateuch, if all we had were the first five books of the Old Testament, we would really have a serious issue as to whether or not it would be possible for Jesus to be God. But what happened was God didn't stop speaking to his people. God did not stop giving his people sacred writings when the Pentateuch was finished being written. And over the next thousand or so years from about 1400 BC all the way till about 400 BC, God continued to speak to his people through his prophets. And these prophecies were written down, prophecies by men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, David, who was a king of Israel. He actually wrote a lot of the poetry that we know as the book of Psalms and that the Israelites used in their worship. A man named Solomon wrote hundreds of Proverbs that we have preserved for us in the book of Proverbs. So God is speaking to his people over these several hundred years, telling them more and more about himself, telling them more and more about themselves, telling them more and more about their relationship with him. And he's making promises to them. He's saying that I am ultimately going to send to you a Messiah, a Savior, who is going to deliver you from the travails that you're undergoing as my people. And among the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that were given with regard to the Messiah, there were at least 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. And some of those talked about the fact that the Messiah was going to be God. So if all we had was Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, there would be an issue with Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, with Jesus being God. But when you take Exodus 20, verse 3, in light of all these other prophecies that predict that the Messiah is actually going to be the God of Exodus chapter, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you realize that it is definitely possible for a Jew to worship Jesus. And in fact, when you couple that with the life of Jesus and with the death of Jesus and with the resurrection of Jesus and with the fact that Jesus said, I am going to die and I'm going to rise again, and then he pulls it off. When you put that all together, it is absolutely reasonable. And many Jews today do believe that Jesus is their Messiah. My mom, for example, being one of them. And so when you ask the question, would it be a problem? Yes, it would be a problem, but not an insurmountable one. Because as we take all of what God has revealed about himself, we see that it is quite reasonable to believe that Jesus could be the Jewish Messiah. And if you want to explore this issue further, the, the question about, you know, why do we believe that Jesus is God? A book that I would recommend that you take a look at is The Case for Christ 
by a guy named Lee Strobel. And those of you who were here uh, several years ago, Lee Strobel spoke here at Renaissance, gave a really powerful, really amazing message. And reading his book, The Case for Christ, is definitely worth your time. So, kind of in our sweep through history, <clears throat> start off with the Ten Commandments being collected, saved in the Ark of the Covenant. Then the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, being collected, being written down, being saved in the tabernacle next to the Ark of the Covenant. Then over the next thousand or so years, you've got the prophets speaking. You've got guys like David writing the Psalms. All of these sacred writings are being collected by the Jewish people so that by the time that Jesus arrives on the scene, they've collected 24 books is the term that's often used. They were probably written on scrolls at, at, at this point. 24 different documents that they considered to be authoritative because they had come from God through his prophets. And that was the Hebrew Bible that Jesus and his apostles used. And so when we ask the question of where did we get the Old Testament, it's essentially the Hebrew Bible that Jesus and the apostles saw as authoritative, as being from God, as being sacred, as being the rule for their belief, for their life, for their practice. That's the Old Testament that we have today. Now, those of you who know how many books we have in the Old Testament, there's a little discrepancy there. The Jews talk about 24, we talk about 39. What's going on there is that we have split up the book of Samuel into 1st and 2nd Samuel. We have split up the Jewish book of Kings into 1st and 2nd Kings. We've split up the book of Chronicles into 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So if you actually take the words that are in the Hebrew Bible and the words that are in our Old Testament today, they're identical. They're the same words. We just break them up differently. We re reorder them a little bit. For example, the book of Malachi is the last book in our Old Testament. In the Jewish, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of what we would call Second Chronicles is the last one. So they're just reordered a little bit. They're broken up a little bit differently. But essentially, our Old Testament is the Bible that Jesus and the apostles used. So let's move forward to the New Testament. After Jesus died, and we talked about this several weeks ago, after Jesus died, his followers wanted to make sure that they preserved his essential teaching, the things that he had did, because they and those who came after them wanted to continue to get to know Jesus. So four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote down biographies of Jesus, four different perspectives, a lot of similarities, some differences between them, looking at them from slightly different perspectives. They wrote down what they remembered of the life of Jesus in the case of Matthew and John, who were friends of Jesus, who were disciples of Jesus, eyewitnesses of what happened. In the case of Mark, he was a close friend of the apostle Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, so he wrote from Peter's perspective. Then there was Luke, who actually researched. He was a historian, and so he interviewed eyewitnesses. He talked to the people who knew Jesus, and he wrote down his biography of Jesus. And as the years went on, the people who knew Jesus looked at these four biographies and they said, you know what? These accurately preserve what we know to be true about Jesus. And over the years, they began to be viewed in the same way as the Old Testament, as the Hebrew scriptures. And so they were being viewed as the word of God. Now, if you've ever watched 
the movie The Da Vinci Code, you know that there's an issue at this point. And some people ask the question, what about the other Gospels that weren't included in the New Testament, like the Gospel of Thomas or like the Gospel of Philip? And there were some other quote-unquote Gospels that were written that some people would say should have been included in the New Testament. If you watch the movie The Da Vinci Code, you know that there was an issue uh, about this. And in The Da Vinci Code, they speak of these as the Gnostic Gospels, which comes from this second century religious movement known as Gnosticism, which was kind of a mystery religion where you had to have special knowledge, which is where the word uh, related to the word gnosis or, or knowledge comes from. You had to have to kind of be initiated into this special knowledge in order to be part of this, in this particular case, sect of Christianity. And so some of the Gnostics wrote what were purported to be biographies of Jesus. The problem was, and there's actually several problems with this concept of the Gnostic Gospels. First and foremost, they weren't written by Jesus' contemporaries. They were written decades, over a hundred years in many cases, after the death and resurrection of Jesus by people who had no immediate direct connection to Jesus. And you say, wait a second, it's called the Gospel of Thomas. Yeah, it's called the Gospel of Thomas because if you're going to write a, a, a fake gospel, essentially, you're going to want to try to attribute it to somebody who would have some air of authority. But the people in that day, everybody knew it wasn't really written by Thomas. It was written by other people who wanted them to believe that it was written by Thomas. And so the people to whom it was written knew these weren't on the same level as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It wasn't written based on eyewitness testimony. Uh, it, it, there were no uh, direct connection to Jesus and to his immediate followers. So when you ask the question, why were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John included, and Thomas and Philip and some of the others not included? Essentially because the people to whom they were written knew that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by people who either knew Jesus or who had interviewed eyewitnesses who knew Jesus, whereas the others weren't. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were viewed by the recipients, by the people who first read them, as being an accurate remembrance of what Jesus had said and what he had done, and the other Gnostic Gospels were not. And if you want to dig deeper into that question, I'm giving you a, a super, super fast version of that. If you want to dig deeper into that, Lee Strobel's written another book called The Case for the Real Jesus, and he goes through a lot of the arguments on both sides of that, and it's definitely, again, worth your reading. So, at this point, then, what we've got is the Old Testament. We've got the four Gospels. They're becoming viewed as authoritative. At this point, they're not fully accepted because they haven't been spread around enough for everybody to know them, but they are, there's a growing consensus toward these four Gospels. And then we come to the book of Acts, which is the fifth book in the New Testament. And we've been talking about this for a while. We actually, our year verse is up here on the wall. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the, the earth. This is Jesus speaking to his followers and saying, I want you to spread the news about me throughout the known world. And if you take a look at the map that we're going to put up here on the screen, down near the bottom, you've got uh, Jerusalem here in the area called Judea. So what, what Jesus is saying, start in Jerusalem where you are, 
spread the news about me in the area of Judea and then work your way up to Samaria and then work it from there to the uttermost parts of the earth. And over the next decades and really over the next centuries, Christianity has spread and we're the recipients of that message being spread out. But as it's being spread throughout the Roman Empire, people like Paul and Peter, James and John, these apostles, they're traveling throughout the Roman Empire. They're telling people about Jesus. They're effectively planting churches in cities all the way throughout the Roman Empire. And then they begin writing letters to the Christians in these various cities, in part because they can't visit all of them. They don't have the internet. They don't have the telephone. They hadn't invented it yet, you know, that sort of thing. So they're sending letters to the Christians in these various cities, and they're answering questions that these guys were asking. They're working through some of the issues. They're telling them more about Jesus and what he said and what he's done. And let's put up the map that we have of, of the New Testament epistles. So you work your way kind of behind me here, Jerusalem down here, the, the gospel, the news about Jesus is being spread through the Roman Empire and eventually it makes it all the way over there to Rome. And so we see cities like Rome where the book of Romans was written to, Thessalonica for Thessalonians, the Philippians, the Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians, etc. And so these letters are being spread throughout the Roman Empire. And when the Christians in one city would receive the letter, they might hear, you know, in Ephesus that the Thessalonians had also gotten a letter from the Apostle Paul. So they connect with their friends in those different cities and they trade letters back and forth and they copy them back and forth, say, hey, we got a letter from the Apostle Paul. Oh, you did too? Hey, can we swap them so that we can kind of see what he's saying to you and what he's saying to us? And so they're circulating these letters around with one another. And over the decades and over the next couple of centuries, there was a growing consensus that there was a set of letters, there was a set of documents that had been written by Jesus' apostles and their close associates, and they were viewed as authoritative for understanding not only who was Jesus and what he had said, that was primarily what was going on with the four gospels, the four biographies of Jesus, but it was also how should we live our lives in light of what Jesus had said and what he had taught. So if you read Paul's letter to the Romans, you're gonna see connections back to the four gospels, but Paul takes concepts from the gospels and he expands on them to help us to get a deeper understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is, of what he's done, and how we ought to live our lives in light of that. And the same is true with the books of, of Ephesians and Corinthians and Galatians and, and really all the way through the New Testament. So that we come to a time about 300 years or so after Jesus had died and risen again, and there was this consensus that there was a, a, a corpus, essentially, of sacred documents that were viewed as authoritative because the people to whom they were written believed that they accurately preserved the teachings of Jesus and his apostles that God had given them to share with his people. And eventually these 27 books became what we know to be as our New Testament. So if we kind of put it together and answer the question in a nutshell, for those of you who like, you know, like it really boiled down to, to, to kind of the, the bottom line, the Old Testament 
is the collection of sacred writings that were viewed by Jesus and his apostles as being authoritative because they were given by God through his prophets. And that's where we got our Old Testament. The New Testament, similarly, is a collection of sacred writings that were viewed by the early Christians as authoritative because they accurately preserved the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. And essentially, that's how we got our Bible. So when we look at the 66 books of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we as Christians look at them as authoritative because they were handed down to us, preserved for us by God through his prophets, through Jesus, through his apostles, so that we could know who he is, how we can have a relationship with him, how we ought to relate to one another and the world around us, and how we can live our lives in a way that's pleasing to him. And that leads to one of the other questions that uh, one of you asked. And that question is, when followers of Jesus die, do they go right to heaven or do they rest, kind of sleep, uh, until the new heaven and the new earth are created? And the background for this question comes from, uh, in some sense, the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation, near the very end of it, it talks about how there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that are created sometime in the future, and that followers of Jesus are going to get to spend eternity with him in the new heaven and on the new earth. And yet we say, yeah, but does that mean that if we were to die today and we're a follower of Jesus, do we kind of just sleep until whatever time in the future that God you know, creates this new heaven and the new earth? And Paul actually, the Apostle Paul actually answered that question in one of the letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth. He says, therefore, we are always confident and we know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What's going on here? He's saying, while I'm here on this earth, while I'm alive, I'm away from the Lord, right? The Holy Spirit is with me, and he talks about that actually in, in 1 Corinthians, but he's saying, I'm away from Jesus while I'm here in this body. But when I die, I'm confident that I am going to be with the Lord. I am going to be with Jesus where he is. And I think if we put that together with the book of Revelation, what Paul is essentially saying is that when we who are followers of Jesus die, we go immediately to be with him where he is in what we might call the current heaven. So we aren't asleep. We're actually with him. It's something that Paul was excited about, something that Paul was looking forward to. But when the day comes sometime in the future, when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, then we get to go to be with Jesus there in the new heaven and the new earth. So bottom line question is, when we die, yes, we get to be with Jesus where he is in a perfect environment, excited, worshiping him, praising him, enjoying the presence of one another in a perfect environment where, as the book of Revelation says, there's no more crying, there's no more sorrow, there's no more death, there's no more pain. And so it's something uh, that we can that we as followers of Jesus can look forward to. So then the question becomes, okay, what do we do in the meantime while we're waiting for heaven? We can't just have this picture of heaven in the future and, and yes, we should be looking forward to that, but God has left us on the earth and what ought we to be doing in the meantime? And that brings us back to the verse that we've been talking about for the past month or so in uh, Acts chapter two, verse 42. Luke writes, he says, 
they devoted themselves, he's talking about the early Christian church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to what we know to be the New Testament. Why? Because it told them who Jesus was, what he had done, and how they ought to live their lives in light of having a relationship with him. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to their relationship with one another. One of the key things that Jesus and his apostles taught is that God did not put us here in isolation to have just simply a relationship between me and God, irrespective of my relationship with other people. God put us here as a church. He put us here as a body. He put us here in some sense as the family of God. And so they were devoted to one another, to that fellowship, to the relationships that they had with each other. They were devoted, excuse me, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, to this, this a symbolic act that we call the Lord's Supper or communion, where we remember what Jesus has done for us, in his, especially in his death, but also by implication in his resurrection, where we realize that God loved us enough that he would sacrifice his son so that we could be restored to a right relationship with him, but also to a right relationship with one another. And that was part of what these early Christians were devoting themselves to. And then they were devoting themselves to prayer, to this communion, to this communication with God, not just you know once a week or so when they would gather to worship, but day by day, moment by moment, carrying on this ongoing conversation with God. So essentially what Luke is saying is that they were devoted both to God and to each other. And this is what was characteristic of those early Christians. And that's God's desire for us as well. That's what he wants for us as his followers. And what I want to encourage you to do is over the next several days, and this afternoon would be a great time if you, if you can make the time to do this, over the next several days at least, take some time, get away a little bit, Maybe it's going for a walk. Maybe it's when you're driving in your car, if that's easier. Maybe it's just shutting your, you know, your study door and, and sitting there and thinking and praying and asking yourself, how can I grow in these four areas in terms of my devotion to Scripture, to God's Word, to the apostles' teaching, in terms of my devotion to fellowship to one another, in terms of my devotion to the breaking of the bread, my appreciation for what Jesus has done for me and my devotion to prayer. What step or steps in each of those areas do I need to take to become more the way that God wants me to be? For some of us, it might be deciding to set aside some time to read the Bible, to reflect on it, to study it, to meditate on it, to, to apply it to our lives, to prayerfully ask God, help me to understand this, these sacred writings that you've given me. Help me to grow in my understanding of them so that I can grow in my knowledge and my relationship with you. Or maybe it means you need to be reconciled with somebody where there's some strain in your relationship. And, you know, a number of you have mentioned that over the last several weeks as we were talking about communion and the Lord's Supper, that you've been reconciled with people with whom you had been estranged for a period of time. Maybe if God is bringing to your heart someone who you need to be reconciled with or someone who you just need to reach out and encourage, 
that might be how uh, a next step that you would take in the area of fellowship. Or maybe you just need to, to uh, work on praying more frequently, on not being afraid to say, you know, Lord, I really would appreciate if I could get a parking place close to the mall, like, you know, to the entrance to the mall, like we were talking about last week. Or, or, or Lord, so-and-so is really hurting. Could you bring comfort into their life? Or, or Father, I'm confused and I don't know how you want me to live in this particular situation. How should I respond to what's going on here? Maybe the next step that you need to take is just a purpose to have that ongoing conversation with God day by day and moment by moment. I don't know what it's gonna look like for you, but my encouragement to you is take some time this afternoon or at least in the next couple of days and prayerfully consider how God would have you to grow and take some next steps in these areas. And if I can be of help to you, if you wanna kind of talk that through with me or pray that through together, let me know and I'd love to get together and talk with you about that. And if you have any more questions about the Bible, one of my favorite things to do is to talk with people, to you know, listen to questions, to, to wrestle through some of those. Uh, a couple of you actually contacted me yesterday. I wasn't able to, to work in the questions because I was already fairly well prepared and didn't want to keep you here till uh, noon you know, as, we're, as we're going through this. Uh, if, you, if your question wasn't answered, let me know. I'd love to take some time and answer any uh, questions that you may have. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. I thank you that you gave us uh, scripture. I thank you that you gave us the Bible. I thank you that you work through the prophets like Moses and David and Isaiah and, and Jeremiah to give us the Old Testament. I thank you that you gave us your son to show us who you are and how we can have a relationship with you and that he sacrificed himself that we could be reconciled with you. I thank you for the apostles like Peter and James and Paul who wrote the letters in the New Testament that we have. And Father, I pray for all of us that as we go from here, I pray that this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, really in the next couple of days, I pray that we would each ask you that question of what's the next step that I can take to grow in my devotion to you and my devotion to the people around me. And I pray that as that happens, I pray that you would help me to grow closer to you and I pray that you would use me and us in the lives of the people around us, that you might be glorified and that we might be blessed. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.